Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. So um, today we're going to talk about how to move beyond a model of agriculture that sort of pits organic versus conventional farming, sort of a model that really leaves little daylight between these two practices. And it's a a way that a lot of journalists, including myself, mea culpa, um, tend to write about these issues. It's, you know, good conflict. It's sort of uh, David versus Goliath stories. Um, You know, we might look at ways that organic methods are being compromised or greenwashed or how sort of regulatory agents have sort of sold out organic farmers and ranchers, or we might be looking at, um, you know, how the, how regulators seem to really support in large industrial operations far more than they're, than they're helping smaller operations trying to adopt sustainable practices. So these are all good stories, and they're all important stories, um, and it's good we do them, but there, there's another story, too. And it's, you know, in many cases, organic and conventional farmers and the scientists who support them are really trying, you know, they're talking to each other. They're trying to find common ground and they're trying to find um, ways that they can learn from each other. And um, so... Um, it's becoming increasingly clear that a lot of the practices that organic farmers have sort of adopted over the years are, you know, things like, you know, grazing versus feedlot operations and cover cropping, uh, you know, versus tilling and, you know, trying to enhance biodiversity in the, in the soil, on the farms and on the ranches with plants, et cetera, and uh, natural pest predators. It's becoming increasingly clear that all of these practices are just good, sound, cost-effective farming practices. And in an age when um, farmers and ranchers have really slim profit margins, they really need good, sound, cost-effective practices to, to adopt. And so we've got three great panelists to talk about this today, I'm excited to say. And um, they're going to talk. We can have a couple of minutes for, or a couple questions after they talk if you want, and we'll open up the floor to questions. Um, I think we should end five minutes early, though, because we keep getting warned that you're not going to get a seat at lunch, so we'll do that um, just to give you a chance to get there. Luckily, it's pretty close. Um, so we're going to start with uh, Jessica Shade, who's the director of science programs at the Organic Center, where she um, runs projects that communicate and do research on organic agriculture. And then we're going to have Sam Frommertz, who's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Food and Environment Reporting Network which is a nonprofit investigative journalism uh, organization, which, full disclosure, I report for. (laughs) He's also the author of Organic Inc. And then finally, we'll hear from Dave Carter, who's the executive director of the National Bison Association, where he works to uh, promote bison and methods used to expand production. So we're going to start with Jessica. And I'll flip your slides. All right, great, thanks. Yeah, you can just go to the first slide. Um, So I am Jessica Shade. I am the Director of Science Programs for the Organic Center. And if you're not familiar with us, we are a nonprofit organization that kind of has two main objectives. One is to communicate science that's happening all over the world about organic food and farming. And then the other is to collaborate with academic and governmental institutions to fill gaps in our knowledge about organic food. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how organic can be a model for agricultural sustainability and how the innovations that are forced by thinking outside of the typical agricultural um, solution box, you know, a lot of pesticides and synthetic fertilizers, 
can actually provide novel tools that might otherwise go unrecognized. So basically, the lessons learned from organic can provide solutions that can be adopted by all of agriculture, regardless of how you farm. So if you go to the next slide. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the environmental benefits of organic. Um, there's been a substantial amount of research on this topic. If you want more information or citations, feel free to contact me. We have a ton of information on this. We actually just had a conference that was co-hosted by the USDA that kind of compiled all the overwhelming evidence um, that the many techniques used by organic farmers can contribute to sustainability. Um, and we're, we have a, uh, we're compiling a white paper from that, so I can share that as well. But what I really want to focus on with this talk is how those benefits can be implemented across the board. Um, so what value the lessons learned from organic farmers has to agriculture outside of the organic center. So basically, how organic holds an important place in the multitude of agricultural strategies out there and where we need to go together to keep moving towards sustainability in agriculture as a whole. All right, next. So organic is built on principles of sustainability. Um, it's regulated based on USDA standards, but what does that actually mean on the farm. So how does that translate onto on-farm practices, um, especially when growers are faced with so many competing factors in their day-to-day -day lives? Just, I mean, there's buyer demand, um, resource availability, perceived risks due to past experiences, et cetera. So in theory, practices that support rich soils a strong community of beneficial organisms, a healthy, ba uh, healthy balance of nutrients, pollinators, all of those things that um, provide ecosystem services contributes to environmental health. In the field, what that means for farmers is that the ability to maximize their yields is tied to all of these things working together. Um, especially because for organic farmers, they can't use a lot of short-term spot treatments that are available to conventional farmers. So if organic growers don't maintain healthy soils and a variety of other sustainability aspects, they aren't going to be contributing to the environmental benefits, but they're also quite literally paying for it because they won't be able to maintain a thriving crop. Um, and what's interesting is that a lot of those environmental services that organic farmers have to implement certain techniques to maintain can also be employed outside of organic farming and has a lot of beneficial aspects because it's longer term control of diseases and weeds, it's lower cost, et cetera. So a lot of those can be adopted into conventional practices and often are to decrease costs and increase the efficacy of other IPM or um, pest management or uh, weed management techniques. All right, next slide. Uh, yeah. 
So um, another kind of cool thing about organic farming that I like to talk about is that the premiums associated with organic products effectively translate to sustainable practices um, and economic gains for farmers. So there have been several studies showing that organic farming, even when yields are reduced, actually result in increased income for farmers and provide economic opportunities for small farms, especially at a time when rural America is struggling and you see a lot of family farms going under. Um, so the hidden environmental externalities of intensive agriculture, the tragedy of the commons, can be mitigated by providing economic incentives for maintaining those shared resources. All right, next slide. All right, so there's also another aspect to take into account, and that's that consumers are becoming more and more interested in sustainability and want to participate in contributing to environmental preservation. So they want to know what products that they're choosing by their values um, and show that in essence they're voting for sustainability with their dollar. So the best way to do that is to know your local farmers, but that isn't possible in all cases. Um, and there's this information disparity between consumers and the food that they eat. So the organic seal is one way to fill that information gap. Um, consumers know that organic farmers have to adhere to certain environmental guidelines, so they're able to engage in sustainability which is crucial for the success of sustainable agriculture as a whole. All right, next one. So um, researchers that are working on organic agronomy also have an important place in contributing to the body of knowledge about agricultural sustainability as a whole. Um, since they can't use the conventional bag of tools like synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, et cetera, they have to think outside of the box. So they have to develop these novel, sustainable solutions to shared agronomic problems. Um, and those innovations aren't exclusive to organic farming. Um, agriculture as a whole shares a lot of these large-scale challenges. And a lot of times, the solutions developed under organic management really effectively address issues that, in a way, either are more cost-effective through reduced inputs or that haven't been able to be addressed by conventional tools. Um, so example, a few of the practices that have been researched and optimized extensively in organic systems that have then been adopted by conventional farms are cover cropping strategies, um, crop rotation patterns, methods for decreasing dependence on expensive pesticides through integrated pest management strategies, um, methods for improving soil health, et cetera. And one thing that's really cool that I've been seeing a lot of lately is these collaborations between organic researchers and conventional researchers. So for example, um, I was just visiting the USDA um, Agriculture Research Service Station 
out in Beltsville, kind of near DC. And they were telling me about this project they were doing in collaboration with GMO researchers that was looking at methods for controlling weeds that didn't involve chemicals because so many farmers these days, especially if you're um, farming with Roundup Ready um, soybeans, have been so these farmers that are using a lot of Roundup have now been facing Roundup resistant crops. So these super weeds that have been spreading and are really hard to control. So the organic researchers and the GMO conventional researchers collaborated on this piece of equipment that's called the the seed destructor. It's this fantastic name that basically sucks up soil in between crops and grinds it up into fine dust so that it collects all of the weed seeds and grinds them up so that they're no longer viable, um, which is kind of cool because it's this... I can tell you that organic researchers would never on their own be able to afford this kind of equipment, but when they are paired up with researchers who have a lot of funding from um, from conventional sources, they can pool their collective knowledge and resources and come up with tools that hopefully will be useful for farmer cooperatives for both conventional and organic. All right, next. And then similarly, it's important to look across the aisle from the organic standpoint to see what conventional farmers are doing so that we can adapt those strategies into conventional practices. Um, there are several techniques that have sustainability benefits that are used on conventional farms that are kind of difficult to implement on organic farms. Um, so researchers have been working on methods to take those individual practices and then place them within a whole systems approach to sustainability. So the classic example is reduced tillage. Um, reduced tillage has all kinds of benefits to prevent, preventing erosion, sequestering carbon in the soil, but it's kind of hard to do without herbicides. So organic farmers have been really lagging behind in their ability to use no-till and reduced tillage systems. Um, and that's a, so this is a puzzle that organic farmers and researchers have been working on for a while. And while there's a lot of research that still needs to get done, enough solutions have been developed that we're at a point now where at least according to the USDA National Agriculture Statistics Service, organic farmers are employing reduced tillage at the same rate as conventional farmers, around 41%. So as I said, there's a lot more work that still needs to be done. But my point is that we need to look across the aisle for sustainability strategies. Um, organic has a lot to offer, but that doesn't mean we can ignore the sustainability advances conventional agriculture and other agricultural systems are using. All right, next. Okay, so this is my last slide. I just wanted to touch on a bit more, which is that we need a lot more research to get to a place where agriculture supports a healthy ecosystem and feeds our growing population. Organic has a lot of promising techniques for supporting the environment, um, but we still need to do more research so that we get to areas um, 
where we can improve yield without using a lot of chemicals. So things like maximizing yields, um, varieties that thrive in broader environmental conditions because it's harder for organic farmers to control the environmental conditions um, that are on their fields. Um, also, things like managing pests and weeds, um, regionally specific tools for information transfer to farmers. So it's not just research, it's making sure that research gets out to the farmers who need to hear about it, which has been a struggle for organic farming. Um, and I'm pretty optimistic. I think that with more research, organic will be able to meet or even surpass conventional yields, especially in the face of extreme weather events, because there's been research showing that organic techniques build up soil in a way that make those crops more resilient when there's flooding or drought. And also one of the things that I like to mention is that if you look at the history of conventional research, there have been decades and millions, if not billions of dollars spent on research to increase yields in conventional, um, in conventional fields. And organic is this really nascent field. So we really haven't had a lot of time to improve our yields. And already within the last five to 10 years, we've seen those yields skyrocket in organic. They're still not at the point where conventional is, but with a little bit more time, a little bit more funding, I think we're gonna get there pretty quickly. Um, so basically, if we can work together to leverage the lessons on sustainability from all of the agricultural systems that are out there and recognize the important place that organic has in expanding our knowledge about sustainability when it comes to agriculture, um, I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to get to a place where we can feed the world sustainably without having to worry about food security because of environmental issues. Thank you, Jessica. Yeah, yeah so um, email me about that. Oh, sorry, the question is, tell me a little bit, tell you a little bit more about the project going on at USDA ARS Beltsville that's looking at uh, this way to destroy seeds by crushing them. Um, and email me about that because it's, I think, an ongoing project and I'm happy to connect you to the researchers who are doing it. I do wanna point out that that is one single strategy for destroying seeds. And while hopefully there isn't selective pressure to overcome that, my guess is that nature always finds a way. And if that's the only weed management strategy you use, those plants will eventually evolve smaller seeds or who knows, make them tougher, whatever, whatever the case may be. So that's why it's really important to not just look at single strategies, but to place those in a holistic context, which is one of the things that organic researchers always do is they really look at, okay, we've got this new strategy. How does that fit into a long-term strategy to control weeds, pests, et cetera, and have a healthy ecosystem. Yes, no problem. So there's actually a research, oh, the question is um, uh, examples of cases where organic yields have outpaced conventional yields after 
natural disasters. So there is a research study that looked at this, and it looked specifically at flooding. So there was a flooding event, and it, it had been comparing um, organic and conventional yields over the long term, and in general, organic lagged behind conventional. But then there was this flooding event, and after that flooding event, Oh, I forget. But if you email me, I'll send you the reference for this study. Um, so after this flooding event, the organic yield surpassed conventional yields. And this is something that um, I think there are actually a couple studies on this because the idea is that organic techniques build up a soil and especially increases the porosity of the soil. So that means that um, water can move through soil easier and soil can also store water a lot better. So when there are droughts or when there are floods, that water isn't either um, completely preventing the roots from having air or if it's a drought, there's a lot more water stored in the soil, so without irrigation, organic fares better. So that's the idea behind it. After after Jessica's talk, I'm going to go up to 10,000 feet because <laughs> uh, I think as as an editor now, especially, that's kind of I look at a lot of broad issues. Um, but you know, specifically on this topic, so I wrote I wrote this book. Uh, it came out in 2006, and actually, I met. David, at that time, he was a really good source of mine. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I focused really on, um, you know, the organic industry itself um, and conflicts within it. And I think in the past, uh, you know, several years that I've been in involved with Fern, my field of vision has really gone way beyond just looking at the organic sector. So I think now I'm sort of seeing, I, I sort of have a, a better, better, um, better balance of, of the two. But, um, but in terms of this larger view, I just want to give a just a, a thumbnail sketch of, of organic. Um, and I think Jessica mentioned it a little bit, but it's always been conceived as as a total system. And actually, the ideas behind organic farming and organic food really came into being in the 1920s. And when you think of that, it wasn't that many years, you know, 20, 30 years um, previous to that, that um, synthetic, you know, nitrogen um, was uh, was essentially invented. And so organic farmers in this time in the 20s were, were reacting to the sort of early use of, um, of chemical uh, fer fertilizers. Um, it was always conceived as, um, or not, I, I don't, the, the early conception of organic was really, was really this idea of feeding the soil. And that if you, if you had healthy soil, that would lead to healthy plants. That would, in turn, would lead to healthy animals, which ate the plants. And of course, it would it would um, lead to healthier people because you're eating a, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, a whole system that 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 was conceived uh, upon health. And so, when you see, um, you know, health claims about organic food today, most of which probably revolve around less pesticide use. I think the the earliest 
this, these ideas go back to the earliest conception of, of organic food, which was always conceived as in opposition to another type of agriculture, which was, which was conventional. And I think to, to sort of underscore point Jessica made too, the idea was always sustainability, how to, how to, how to create food systems that will, um, will, will last for the long term. Um, and I, you know, it was contrasted to the regime of conventional ag, and I think especially by the, you know, jumping forward by the by the 60s and 70s, when um, uh, when you're producing for yield regardless, in other words, get the most productivity as you can out of the land. Um, the biggest probably example of this was, you know, it was the Green Revolution. Um, uh, you know, plants were bred uh, in a way to be the most productive. Um, there wasn't much concern about water use, about chemical use, uh, both fertilizers and, and um, synth synthetic pesticides, because all of the, the whole system was designed to increase, increase the yield without really looking at the after effects of, of that regime. So you'll often hear, for example, in the Green Revolution that um, it fed a, a billion people. And there's, I mean, there's good research to show how, um, you know, how, how yields increased and how uh, food supplies, especially of staple uh, uh, crops, increased. Um, but at the same time, there was follow-on research about, you know, denuded soils, um, um, aquifers that were being, you know, significantly reduced, as well as increased um, chemical dependence and the impact of, of, of all that. Um, again, this sort of gets back into the idea of research because a lot of research went into that in, within, within that paradigm. And um, if you talk to er, early organic farmers, I mean, essentially, they were um, they they were they were applied scientists because they were coming up with methods you know on their farms that that worked uh, without you know without chemicals with more you know with more or less success um, uh, and research in organic agriculture as Jessica mentioned has always lagged uh, conventional ag and all, although in recent years that there's begin to be some correction of that within the farm bill it's still it's still um, not at parity so I think you still have um, you still have a case of um, of um, inorganic inorganic agriculture of farmers learning from each other, it's a lot of practical uh, knowledge, and it's not always, um, you know, although, although there's, more, there's more science and more research, um, I think, uh, as Jessica said, that there's more to be done with that. So, um, you know, it's interesting when, um, when I did this book in, in 2006, um, more, you know, obviously more than a decade ago, um, I think I think um, it was sort of the early point when um, there was a recognition of um, the potential for increased profitability through organic agriculture, and so at that time I met some of the earliest conventional farmers who were going into organic, and um, uh, some of them were actually doing doing both. They had conventional fields and organic fields. And, uh, you know, you talk about this opposition between these two, two points of view. 
Um, but in this case, you know, I was meeting farmers that essentially were doing both. And when you talk, you know, to talk to farmers, they're very practical minded. They want to know what works and they want to know how they're going to make money at it so they can continue uh, to do it. Um, one strawberry farmer I talked to who was the um, first organic grower for Driscoll's, um, he, um, he had converted some of his production to organic and was getting a price premium. But because of that, he was um, um, using the practices on his organic fields in his conventional uh, operation as well. And why was that? It was a cost, it was a cost issue. And particularly in California, um, with restrictions over pesticide use um, and uh, um, controversies about that, especially fumigants, he was, you know, at that time, um, starting to reduce his chemical use and had figured he had, he had dropped it in his conventional fields by 50%. So already you had, um, you know, even back then, people who were, you know, sort of looking at or, or practicing in both realms and then seeing, seeing uh, what, could, what could be done. But I think, I think now, you know, if you fast forward more than a decade, um, there's many more, there's, there's, there's um, you know, there's, there's issues that are really at the forefront, um, you know, which I, didn't, which I didn't deal with in this book. And I think I'm seeing, you know, really in a daily, um, daily in my, my work at Fern, you know, one is obviously, um, you know, issues of water pollution, of fertilizer runoff, of algae, you know, significant algae blooms and the threat to public water supplies. Um, you're, you know, there's more talk, I think, about uh, uh, soil health and um, how, to, how to enhance soil health, not only on, um, you know, obviously that's always been an issue with organic farms, but I think you're starting to see that more on conventional farms as well and through um, um, uh, uh, agencies like the NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service at, at the USDA, which promotes these issues and is actually um, doing researching and looking into biological health of the soil. Um, and then finally, obviously, the, the elephant in the room, which is climate change and, you know, extreme weather in terms of uh, floods uh, and droughts. And um, farmers are looking at, um, you know, every tool um, that they have available to deal with that, especially in the, you know, obviously in California had its, uh, you know, the, its, its um, record-setting droughts. Um, but in, in the Midwest in the last, you know, couple of years have been devastating in terms of, of rains and the impact of, of rains on crops. So... Um, with that, I think I think farmers recognize that they can't, um, um, you know, it, it isn't it isn't business as usual, and especially I think in the Midwest where you also have a situation of of, of low crop prices. You know, when you have low prices combined with low yields, it can be just you know devastating, and even you know your um, your subs your government subsidies or your Trump trade you know tariff subsidies they're not going to make you whole. So um, uh, this just just a few weeks ago, I was talking to um, a conventional farmer, a guy named Fred Yoder in Illinois, who um, has about 2,000 acres of, um, of, of corn and soybean crops. And he, he's like your diehard conventional farmer, 
former head of the National Corn Growers Association, member of Trump's Agriculture Advisory Panel. So what we were talking about was he has completely adopted cover cropping uh, to his fields. And as Jessica said, this is like a bedrock practice of organic farming where you always keep your fields covered in something because it helps the biological life of the soil, which is exactly what he was talking about to me. So um, uh, um, you improve the soil because you have um, a crop that's um, um, growing there. You're choking out weed pressures because weeds can't compete with the cover crop. And because you're building organic matter in your soil when you till it, when you, when, you, um, when you either kill or flatten the cover crop, it builds organic matter in the soil and adds fertility, which means your chemical use can go down. So uh, he talked about one farmer um, in Indiana that had converted to um, uh, cover cropping. And these were also no, these were no-till cover cropping operations. So. Um, he, he, for example, still used herbicides to, to kill his cover crop. But um, this other farmer he talked to wanted to cut down his herbicide usage, so he was using what's called a roller, which is attached to a tractor, which basically rolls over the cover crop, smashes it, or not smashes it, but just breaks the stalks of, you know, say, uh, ryegrass or others. And so they just be, form this kind of dead mat over the field, and then you plant into that, and because you have this mulch over your fields of the dead cover crop, you don't need to use herbicides. And um, and so <clears throat> this farmer in Indiana, he was doing all these practices to cut down his herbicide use and cut down his costs, and then he realized, wait, I'm organic. <laughs> so he basically converted, you know, like a third of his production to organic once he had met that it's a three-year transition. So this is, a, this is not someone who had planned to go organic. Um, again, just reacting to pressures um, and, and adopting practices that, that worked you know, in their operation. Um, Fred was saying one thing that they found with cover crops is especially like the spring rains were devastating in the, um, in the Midwest. Uh, fields were so wet they couldn't get in soon enough to plant their corn crops. But because he had planted this cover crop, and as Jessica said, um, uh, soil with high degree of organic matter is able to hold much more water, um, he was able to get on his fields like uh, you know two to three weeks earlier than his neighbors. Um, and he said, you know, like his neighbor who who didn't use any cover crops was basically taking his tractor down, really compacting the soil because he was planting into mud. And then, um, you know, and trying to plant his crop, and whereas, you know, Fred was able to do it, and his field fields were healthy, and this year his neighbor is hiring him to advise him on how to do cover cropping. So that's, you know, I mean, so again, this is like I think very practical knowledge, and people see results, and they're going to use it now. You know, Freddie Yoder's still using herbicides, but he's cut his herbicide usage. So it's not definitely not an organic system, um, but it's it's going in that uh, direction. Um, the one last thing I'll mention, and maybe it'll be touched on other panels here. One reason that farmers are really conventional farmers are really kind of looking at this is because there's more and more talk about um, incentive incentivizing 
um, um, building soil carbon. So there's some NASA prog programs, um, federal as well as state programs that um, pay farmers for, say, um, uh, planting a cover crop. And the more recent ones with a lot of um, NGOs involved in this area will actually are trying to come up with ways to measure soil carbon and then um, pay farmers for that or give them credits, which they can then trade to corporations which are looking for carbon credits. Um, and they get, they give them the, the credits, they get money, and essentially it's incentivizing these practices for building uh, soil carbon. And, and what are they? They're like no-till, it's cover crops, it's anything that increases soil carbon. Um, and that, at its bedrock, I would say, is, is an organic practice. You know, that's, that's what you want to do. So, um, uh, um, so I'll just, I guess I'll end it there. Um, but it's, you know, if it's, I wouldn't call these, I wouldn't call these practices organic farming because they're not, they're not organic. They're not following organic regulations. They're still using pesticides and herbicides, but they are an organic methodology. And I think it's an organic kind of mindset in terms of how you're thinking about the soil, which I would say is, is quite different from the way it was in the past. Thank you, so, Sam. Yeah. I think we should probably move along. Just yeah. um, we, um, I want to let you out at uh, five minutes early. So, Dave, do you want to go next? <clears throat> sure. Um, so, I'm Dave Carter. I'm the director of the National Bison Association. And uh, have to, well, first of all, to establish my street cred with, with all of you, I, uh, my degree is actually in journalism. I worked a couple years on newspapers before I drifted into agriculture. I even began my career in journalism in high school running a linotype machine for the Lions Recorder newspaper in Lions. How many people here know, have run a linotype machine? Uh, I've seen them. Or how many even know what a linotype machine is? So, but uh, you can Google it. Um, as a disclaimer, this is the fourth presentation that I've given since Saturday. I was in Atlanta on Saturday talking to a bloggers conference uh, called ShiftCon. On Monday, I was in Chicago at a direct marketing conference that USDA put together. And then yesterday, I was over in Boulder at what's called the Pet Sustainability Coalition, which are pet food companies that are trying to be sustainable. I thought, you know, this is pretty easy. I've got kind of one presentation here that I've got. I've got a PowerPoint that we focus on what we call partners in bison restoration, how the public is our partner in restoring bison and how bison are restoring healthy grasslands and why we've trademarked the term bison nature's original plant-based protein. And I got to my, down to my office this morning and I flipped open the computer to kind of get ready and I thought, but that doesn't really fit into the title of the workshop I'm going to be doing. So you're all getting the version, uh, presenter's version of calling an audible here. Um, if you, life isn't complete without one more PowerPoint, I'm, I'll stay afterwards and we'll go through that. But um, because I got to thinking about the title of, of this workshop and conventional and organic, and I guess I'm fortunate that I've spent my career in all three areas. And let me explain what I mean. Um, I spent 25 years with the Farmers Union Organization, general farm organization working with farmers and, and ranchers. And 
went through the farm crisis of the 1980s. I don't know how many of you were covering agriculture, involved in agriculture in the 1980s, but it was an ugly, ugly time. We were involved in setting up a suicide hotline in the fire station in Yuma, Colorado. But coming out of that process, then I saw agriculture start to diverge in, into two paths. There was the group of farmers that were saying, I'm a commodity producer. I grow number two yellow corn. And my margins are going to be this thin. So for me to feed my family and to make a living, I've got to have the most land. I've got to get the biggest equipment. I've got to find out about this new genetic modification technology, et cetera, and so on. And there was another group of producers, folks like Mel Coleman Sr. and just north of here, uh, Lou Grant of Grant Family Farms, John Ellis in Boulder, that said, you know, I'm not a commodity producer. I'm a farmer. I produce food. And it's not just about producing a generic commodity, it's about producing good, healthy food, it's about taking care of the soil. And I believe there are folks out there that are willing to pay a little bit more for the way I'm going to produce food. And so that's where we saw these, these two tracks. And um, I started to get involved with the organic producers. We, we actually had an affiliation with Colorado Organic Farmers Association through Farmers Union. And then in 2001, I was appointed to the National Organic Standards Board and served as chair of that board at the time when the organic standards came in. But about the same time, I decided to have a midlife crisis and go off. I was just going to do consulting, and that's where I ended up as the director of the National Bison Association. And a couple years later, my wife and I bought our first five heifer calves, and now we're partners on uh, uh, two other ranchers on a herd east of Denver on land that's owned by the Savory Institute. But I say in all three sectors because bison doesn't fit in either one of those. We're sort of in this netherworld in between organic and conventional. So we like to say in the bison business that the animal teaches us something every day. And I, I just want to convey a little bit of what we've learned in the bison business and how it can perhaps contribute to this conversation. When I came on board in the early 2000s, the bison business was absolutely in the tank. Um, few chefs were putting a ribeye and a strip on the menu, and there were freezers full of meat and, and whatever. But there was also this conflict between bison ranchers and the conservation community and tribal producers. Um, and so first of all, we sat down as a business, as an association, and we made a determination early on, about 2003, 2004, that we never want to be a commodity. Bison will always be a niche. Beef does the best job in the world of being beef, so why would we want to be another version of beef? We're going to be something different. But it was about that time that the Wildlife Conservation Society and their journal had this big article about ranch bison aren't really contributing to the, the conservation because they're on ranches and they're being managed and domesticated and some of them are in feedlots and you know yada yada and pissed me off um, but fortunately i wasn't the president of the association the president of the national bison association said let's get a hold of these guys let you and i go to new york city and we'll sit down and talk with them and so Mike Duncan and I got on a plane. We got a hold of John Cavelli, the vice president of WCS. We went to the Bronx Zoo, and we sat down, and we started talking with him. And it was about, yes, we have these different approaches to it, but at the heart of it is this magnificent animal that we love. 
and that we want to be stewards of. And so how can we start to work together? Well, we started to reach out and have some of those same conversations with a, a group called the Intertribal Buffalo Council. They, they work with 60 tribes that are committed to bringing back. And it was a few years later that I was at a meeting in, in Rapid City, South Dakota, and standing at the back of the room and was talking with Mike Faith, who's the chair of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and, and the vice chair of the Intertribal Buffalo Council. And we got to talking, and Mike said, you know, Dave, he said, there are always going to be 80% or there are always going to be 20% of the issues we're not going to agree on. But why do we let that keep us from working on the other 80%? And so we sat down and actually developed a formal memorandum of understanding with the Intertribal Buffalo Council trying to, to define those 80% that we could work on. They, they now have an advisory member on our board. We have an advisory member on their board. And beginning in 2012, Wildlife Conservation Society and, and the ITBC and the NBA came together. And after six years of working in Congress, President Obama signed legislation in 2016 establishing bison as the national mammal of the United States. And that was just an example of when we kind of recognized that there was more that kept us together than kept us apart, that we could do some incredible things. Uh, we're now working on... Um, we have a conservation committee within the National Bison Association where our ranchers are talking about continuous improvement that they can make to manage their herds uh, more appropriately with the way that this animal evolved rather than as, as a, a ranched animal. We're working with South Dakota State University to develop a center of excellence for bison studies and Sintagleski University and some of the tribal universities are in, involved in that. So, you know, I think about that and, and Sam was just talking about that with his, uh, you know, with, with Mr. Yoder about that, that if we can peel apart those things that keep us from talking to each other and sit down and even with organic and, and conventional you know, I'm, I'm a, a big passion of, of organic production, but I don't know of a single conventional farmer that wants to go out and pollute their land or feed their family less healthy food. And certainly they're not wanting to go out of business like many of them are today. And so if we can identify those basic core values, that gives us an opportunity to sit down. And I just finished by saying Mike Faith um, was at our annual conference last winter, and, and we were talking, and, and I shared the story about the 2080. And I finished up, and I turned to Mike, and I said, would you say this, Mike, that maybe we're down to 10% now? And he said, yeah, I think we are. I think we are. And so that's something that I think, again, uh, we call it wisdom of the buffalo, that the animal can teach us about talking to each other. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, I have a question for you guys, but I wanted to open it up to the floor since we're running a little bit late, and I wanted to make sure people had a chance to ha have questions. Anyone have any questions? Yeah, in the back. Uh, hi. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> I didn't see you back there. <laughs> yeah, so oh, the, question, the question is if the new regulations on um, nitrogen release have been having an impact on farmers going organic. 
So this is actually a big controversy in the research community because there is this old standing myth that the use of manure and compost actually releases more nitrogen into the environment than synthetic fertilizer. Um, in the last five years, there's actually been a lot of research on this issue. And there was a study that came out of, um, it was a collaboration between Iowa State University and USDA ARS that managed to isolate all of the nutrient outflows from different farming systems, which is very difficult. Um, and what they found is that organic releases, on average, about 50% less nitrogen into the environment than conventional. Now, whether that has um, filtered into reasons for people switching over to organic, I haven't seen that. Um, because it's very difficult to quantify that on a farm by farm basis. So um, it's harder for people to ensure and uh, provide proof to these regulatory agencies that their techniques are reducing nitrogen. That being said, I think it is going to be really important for us to start using less and less synthetic nitrogen and more um, of these, you know, manure compost systems that are able to build up the soil so that it can hold nutrients within the soil rather than releasing them into our groundwater. Um, so I think that one of the things we need to do more work on is connecting the research that's getting done in academia and the regulatory um, requirements so that they match up and there are specific strategies for people who want to do that in a more natural way. Yeah, so, so I would add um, uh, it's, it's not just a water issue in terms of, you know, excess fertilizer uh, running into waterways and causing algae blooms and a lot of other um, problems, uh, polluting water supplies, drinking water supplies. Uh, but it's also nitrogen in the soil um, releasing its NO2, Nitri yeah, ni nitrous oxide. Um, when it combines with water, it com releases nitric oxide, which is a really powerful greenhouse gas. So um, the um, I think some of the most, uh, I mean, uh, you know, there are obviously the regulatory regimes that you mentioned in, in this country, you know, there's... I don't, I don't see that coming. But what you do have is, for example, Walmart working with, I think it's EWG, or not EWG, um, um, one of the other environmental groups, on um, uh, getting farmers that supply them to reduce um, their use of nitrogen. So um, if the farmer, if farmers don't, you know, sort of sign up into that program, you know, potentially they're going to be cut off. And this is, I mean, I think for Walmart, I mean, with the Walmart Foundation, it's a big issue because they're concerned about Gulf pollution. So, um, you know, whatever you may think about Walmart as a you know, giant corporation or whatever, but it, it does, it is, I think, having an impact. And I know we wrote, uh, we did one story where they were working with um, grain farmers that supplied Smithfield um, 
um, you know, basically all all the hog feed, and they were working, um, um, you know, on ways to reduce their use of nitrogen to get that ceiling down, and that was again pressure from the end consumer, which was Walmart. Yeah, and that kind of plays into one of the things that you were talking about, where there's this stepwise um, progression towards organic practices, where all of a sudden farmers realize, I'm already using all of these techniques that organic farmers use. I might as well get the premium and just go organic. So it's not just um, it's not just state regulatory enforcement. It's also these private agencies that eventually encourage farmers towards practices that are organic that push them slowly towards organic certification. Yeah, and if I mean and if you're going to pay a farmer to do that, like if you could measure their reduction in nitrogen and then give them an incentive, I mean, of course they're going to if it makes sense, they're going to do it. And that's what that's what's happening now with some of these larger consortiums of NGOs and private, you know, um buyers, you know, Walmart and others to create these programs. It's, it's, yeah, it's incentivizing, it's paying farmers to build soil carbon and reduce and, in, and increase water quality by reducing runoff. So, I mean, you're paying them for practices that will do that. So if I'm a farmer, you know, it kind of makes sense. It's like any subsidy, you, you farm to the subsidy. Yes, and I think that one of the ways that organics doing that is by giving farmers techniques to control all of the things that they're trying con to control with, especially um, herbicides, without paying all of that money for these, you know, specific trademarked crops, and then adding on to that the cost of all the chemicals that they put on their field. So it's kind of, again, most of the places I've been seeing this is in this stepwise fashion where all of a sudden they're using cover crops. All of a sudden they're using all these integrated pest management strategies. So they're using tools to decrease their crops. And then once they get halfway there, they're like, I could be making a lot more money if I transition to organic. So a lot of the argument for organic, I mean, what moves me is environment, but what's going to move a farmer who's working on a thin margin and they're trying to s support their family is really the economic argument for it. I just jump in there as an example. Yeah, when you you know when we talk about kind of pointing the finger at the bad guys, you know, it, it's we need to provide then the path, the alternative path. Um, I mean, I go back to the farm crisis. I mentioned that before. At that time, I spent a lot of my time running around because there was a guy named Rick Elliott who was uh, trying to convince farmers that they, they were in trouble because it was some grand Jewish trilateral, you know, and people were, were falling for it. I mean, because they were desperate. And, you know, so we were out there fighting. And finally, one of my friends said, you know, if you're taking away the last thread somebody's hanging on to, you got to give them another rope to grab onto. And so that's what, you know, we're trying to see. And and I think now with with Monsanto and Bayer, you know, people are beginning to realize. A few years ago, I was at the FFA National Convention. We always have a booth there, and the Organic Consumers 
Association was there. And here's 60,000 students in their blue jackets coming from farms all over. And here were these things, you know, up there about stop Monsanto and quit killing this, you know, and I, I went over and I told him, I said, you know, do you think your best way to build a conversation with these kids is to tell them that their parents are killing the earth? You know, and so then the next year, I noticed that the OCA, their booth was much more of, here's some opportunity, you know, here's some options you as a young person can do in getting involved in organic agriculture that will give you a chance to build a profitable future and family and all of that. And to me, that's much more effective. And believe me, I hate Monsanto. I've got a lot of Monsanto stories I can tell from the days going back to the late 1980s. But it's so important that we talk about what's a path, the, what's the viable alternative path to get out of that trap? Um, so the question was, what is the USDA doing to help this transition? Um, I'll, I'll be the naysayer here, I, and I want to bring up a couple of examples where the USDA is being uh, really unhelpful. And, um, um, and that's, that has to do with organic regulations. And one, um, and this goes back to Dave's time at the NOCB. We're talking like early 2000s. There was a, there was a rule um, for dairy farmers that once you transition to organic production, that your calves should be raised organically. And um, the thing was, in the initial transition period, um, you could bring non-organic calves onto your farm. And essentially, um, that loophole, uh, it, it's remained a loophole in the sense that um, there's been large organic dairy farms that continually bring in conventional calves, which they transition to organic. So uh, the reason they do that is because it's way cheaper to raise an organic, uh, raise a conventional calf than it is to raise an organic one. So they want to continually bring in conventionally raised animals and then and then bring them into organic production. So that loop, that, that's been a glaring loophole that's been there for over a decade. It's never been closed. Um, the other one was there's um, 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 a regulation on um, humane practices in organic agriculture and organic livestock agriculture, this yeah, animal welfare, that have been on the docket for how long? I don't know. Like well, it was the the, <laughs> the NOSB proposed the animal welfare standards in 2014, and right. it's still you know yeah ongoing right now. Yeah, and so it, it had been overwhelmingly improved by organic farmers. There'd been a lot of comment, and basically it was just um, it was it was deep six by the Trump administration. So it's gone nowhere. And now the OTA is actually has filed suit over it. Yeah, so the organic. It's one, it's one of these things where there's been overwhelming support from the producers, like that they want something, and it's you know it hasn't gone anywhere because conventional agriculture has essentially opposed it. They don't want organic having a humane label. Or humane. And and I would just say, and not to get too political, but I think there's a difference, you know. Uh, previously, with the deputy secretary of agriculture for a long time or a period of time was the person who helped write the Organic Food Production Act. Um, and so you had a certain uh, directive coming from the top lines as opposed to when someone else is there, and I'll just leave it at that. 
Um, but yes, it's a, it's a long process of, of trying to make sure that you have the folks at the top of the USDA that are committed to it. We found in the bison business, we have, you know, we don't have a big checkoff program. Eight, the beef industry has $82 million a year. They get to use to tell all of us beef is what's for dinner, and the dairy industry has $120 million, and we have a voluntary checkoff program that raises $50,000 a year. So that's, you know, kind of... Um, we find that sitting down in person with folks at USDA, we've been able to establish some some good relationships. Political appointees come and political appointees go, but the people that do the heavy lifting are in cubicles down a narrow hallway of the South Building of USDA in Washington, D.C. And the more that we can establish those relationships, we can kind of percolate it up from, from there. And so we get uh, an amount of attention beyond the scope of our business from folks at USDA just because we have built those relationships at the lower levels. And real, oh, uh, about the suit. I'll, I, I was going to say that, yes, the organic community, the Organic Trade Association is furious about those two things that you mentioned, Sam, and they are. There is a, an ongoing lawsuit to get those passed through. But I also want to mention just a couple of things that the USDA is doing to help organic, because there are, benef there are yeah. good relationships, too. So um, through... Yeah. Through the Farm Bill, um, there was an increase in funding that was um, built into this last Farm Bill that supports organic research directly. So the Organic Research and Extension Initiative and the Organic Transitions Grant, um, that goes through... NEFA in the USDA, and that really supports organic. Um, there's also a cost share program for farmers who want to transition to organic to help help them be able to do that. Um, there are some extension agents that have organic expertise, not enough, and not in all locations, but that is a part of the USDA as well. Um, they also work with the Organic Center every year and co-sponsor a um, conf conference, the Organic Confluences Conference, which brings together multiple different stakeholders to discuss um, large-scale issues that are keeping the organic um, sector from moving forward. So there, there's good and bad happening at the USDA. Yeah, and one thing I just want to mention politically, too, I mean, there's a lot of organic agriculture in red states, and so you have red state legislators who are, you know, supportive of, you know, efforts in the farm bill to increase funding and that, that kind of thing. Do have time for one more? Um, well, I want to just ask um, Dave, um, what, um, what sort of, in your view, was lost when we lost the 50 million bison roaming across the plains? And I know you're doing restoration efforts. And if you could just talk briefly about how any of that uh, restoration could be applied to cattle ranching, okay. if possible. Yep. Gosh. Thank you. That's what I wanted to talk about. That's what my president now. So just to give you the, the quick snapshot, bison been around for 200,000 years. The grassland ecosystem evolved with bison with that constant interaction. Before the first European settlers set foot on the ground, we had between 30 and 40 million head of bison in North America. By 1885, for a number of reasons, we were down to 700. 
And so it was this slow process of, of restoring the, the animals. We're now up to about 400,000 bison in, in North America, pr pretty much equally split between the US and Canada. Most of them are on private ranches. We, along with the Intertribal Buffalo Council and the Wildlife Conservation Society, have established what we call Bison One Million, which is a endeavor to bring back one million bison. Um, and it'll, it'll be over a course of several decades to get that to happen. These aren't chickens. They don't reproduce real quick. And so we have the conservationists, the tribal leaders, and the ranchers, but the fourth critical partner is the public. And so our message is the more you eat bison, the more you embrace bison, the more we are able to bring it back. And that the way, and the, we're learning that these animals are not cattle, the more we recognize that Mother Nature did a pretty darn good job with these animals over thousands of years. So the best we can do is stand back, we don't castrate, we don't dehorn, we don't brand, we don't use, that they build soil. They help trap, they help maintain healthy grasslands and trap carbon and build soil. So I'll just leave it with that. And if you <laughs> want to be a partner in bison restoration, we'll talk about that. Well, <laughs> and I don't have any business cards, but I have white bison brochures that have my contact info. All right. Well, <laughs> I think that's, uh, we should probably wrap it up so people can get a seat. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.